Well, we're talking about the Trinity, why the Trinity is essential to God's work. I want you to imagine a person in a hospital bed, and this person's about to have surgery, and they're thinking about the future and what's going to happen and the uncertainty of it. Maybe even the surgery is a very, very serious surgery. And as that person sits there on that hospital bed, they think to themselves, like, how, how is God going to work in this situation? Like, how can I see God work in this hospital room? Or imagine a Christian who's going to go out to coffee with an unsaved friend, and, and they want that friend to come to Christ. They've been praying for years that that friend would know Christ. And, and so as that person goes to coffee, they think, how, how can God work in this person's heart? Or maybe there's a, a person who is struggling with an addiction. They have some type of temptation that's overcoming them, and they sit in their couch at night with their, their head in their hands, and they cry out to God, and they wonder, how is God going to work in my life? How can he give me victory in this situation? And the question for all those scenarios, all those situations really is, how does God condescend to us and work in our life. People in our world are desperate for God to intervene and work in their life. People all around our world are seeking for God to intervene, to work, to hear from him. This morning, I want to demonstrate to you from God's word how God works in our world, and specifically how God works in your life. We're talking about why the Trinity is essential. And last week, we looked at why the Trinity is essential for life. And this this week, I want to hone in on the work of God, how God works as a triune God. And when you look around this world and you wonder how is God working? When you think about yourself and how will God and how can God work in my life, here is the answer to that. And the answer is that God is one. And his name is Yahweh. We learned about that last week. And God exists as three persons who come to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And so I've kind of encapsulated that in this little phrase here this morning, that God comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And and what I want you to do this morning is really to take this truth and superimpose it upon your understanding of the Scripture and really see this in the Scripture. I think if you understand how God works as a trinity, as he as how he works as a triune God, I think it can transform your thinking and, and honestly, your life. Last week, we learned that Trinity means three, tri-unity, three in one. And God is one being who works as three distinct persons. So there's not three gods. There's not one God with three names. There is one being, one God who eternally exists in three persons. And each person is fully God, yet there's only one God. 
And this is the moment when our minds trip the breaker, right? And they stop working. And we wonder, like, okay, I'm not logically thinking through this now. What, what should I do? And here we're contemplating something that truthfully is not uh, in our ability to fully comprehend as finite, fleshly humans. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 describes the knowledge of God like a, like a deep sea. And so last week, we dove into that deep sea. And we, we went down into the theological sea, and we found the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of you felt like you got drowned last week, or almost, right? But you know, it's kind of what it is. When you think about something this deep, the Trinity, you're, you're submerging yourself, hopefully, in the scriptures. That's where you find this doctrine. And in the immensity and incomprehensibility of God. And as your brain descends deeper and deeper into the ocean of God's majesty and wisdom, you're, you're, the pressure can, can build and you can really kind of freeze up and think, I, I can't think anymore about God because I am not able, able to understand this paradox. And that's really what it is. It's a paradox. There, there's no contradiction here. God is one, and he exists as three persons. That's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. And how can our minds be able to, to, to comprehend an infinite God? Well, they can't. And would we expect anything else? I mean, if we could fully comprehend God, would he truly be God? And if we could put God in a box or we could put him on a shelf or if God could be contained in a book, would he be even worthy of our worship? The answer to those, both those questions is no, right? I mean, God must be something that is far beyond our complete comprehension. And so when we're talking about the Trinity, that's what we're talking about. And so I think the first thing that, that the doctrine of the Trinity must do is it must cause us to fall before the Lord in awe and in worship of him, to adore him. And secondly, I think it must cause us to consider more about how God works. So what I want to do is I want to take this, this jewel, if you want to say, of the doctrine of the Trinity, and I want us to examine it and really this morning talk about how we can apply this to our life. Would you go back to Genesis chapter 1, where we started last week? How does God come to us? How does he condescend to communicate and work in our lives? All of us have ways we engage with one another. I have a sister who lives in Southeast Asia, and so we WhatsApp. I have parents who live in Indiana, and so they FaceTime us. Sometimes they fly out here. I have a family that lives with me every day, and they communicate face-to-face -face with me. So how does God communicate with us? How does God work in our lives? And one of the things we're going to see, or the truth we're going to see this morning, is that the Bible teaches that God comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And stay there in Genesis 1, but I want you to see this in two verses this morning. Let me demonstrate this from the New Testament. Ephesians 2.18 as I look at this verse on the screen and think about what it means that God comes to us from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Genesis, or Ephesians 2.18. For through him, that's the Son, we both have access in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
to the Father. So we have access to the Father. We can pray to him. He hears our prayers because we come to him through the Son by the Holy Spirit. Or think about this one, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. This is the New King James Version. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're chosen according to God's knowledge. It's through the blood of Christ and by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And honestly, you can go through verse after verse after verse in the scripture, and this is the pattern that you're going to see. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what happened before that? What was, I should say, before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Well, God was. There was nothing before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, except for God. Nothing existed but the triune God. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, look at that verse with me. The scripture says, and God said, let there be light. And I want you to observe as you go through each of these verses that each day of creation starts with, and God said, and from nothing comes something. Now think about that with me. Why does it say, and God said? Think about that. I mean, there wasn't like this group of people that were listening to him, right? It's not like God has these vocal cords where he has, that's, you know, he's going to speak through vocal cords or he's, he's a sound wave. Why doesn't it say, and God thought, let there be light? Or in God purposed, let there be light? You ever thought about that? Why does it say, and God said? And here's the reason why, because that's the way God works. God works through his word. So in Genesis chapter one, what we see right off the bat is God works through his word. God works within the Trinity and throughout history through the word. This never changes. In eternity past, in the present, in eternity future, it will be like this, that God will come to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. The Father purposes, the Father plans, the Father designs, the Father commissions, and the Son goes, the Son speaks, the Son is the eternal word. All things are done through the Son, and it's by the Spirit. In fact, you can look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, which we looked at last week, and you can see that the Spirit moves, and he, he energizes the words of the Son. So what, what we observe in Genesis chapter 1 is Yahweh God, the Lord God, creating according to the Father's will through the Word of God by the Spirit of God. And so when you see these verses, like Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, said, you'll see that word there actually 11 times in chapter 1. What we need to recognize is this is God creating through the words of the second person of the Trinity, that is the Son of God. So those, those words said right there are being spoken by the Son of God. And you ask that, the question, well, how do you know that, Pastor Ben? Let me just show you these verses on the screen. You can write these down if you want to. Hebrews 1, 2. Through whom, that's Jesus, also he, that's the Father, created the world. Colossians 1, 16. All things were created through him, that's Jesus, and for him. 
John 1, 3, all things were made through him. Carl read that scripture for us here this morning. And this is the eternal way the triune God relates and he works. And that happened at creation, but that's actually still how God functions today. God purpose, has purpose. God has plan. The Father has a sovereign plan. The Son, he sustains all things and holds all things together by the word of his power. And the Spirit is the one who energizes it. Colossians 1.17. In him, that's Jesus, all things hold together. So we look around this world at the physical things. We think about even history. All of it's held together. All of it's moving along because God the Son says so according to the Father's sovereign plan bonded together by the Holy Spirit. So this is how God works. Now, that might seem like God's work is is mechanical, maybe distant, but that could be nothing further from the truth. Go to Genesis chapter 2. What I want to do in Genesis 2 is hone in on how God personally interacts with his creation. In Genesis 2, 4, we see God's name, Yahweh, the Lord God. He's the one who created And then what we see is Yahweh God takes some type of personal, visible manifestation. And the scripture is not clear what this looks like. There's no description in here of what this looks like except for the actions of Yahweh God. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God, remember I said the Lord is the name for God, Yahweh God, formed the man of dust, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. I want you just to imagine this. We're not going to read through this whole text, but consider this. God has created the world. Like there's the stars in place. There's the animals. There's Because you have all this beautiful world that God's created and then God condescends He formed man from the dust, from the dirt of the ground. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Later on, we're going to see he builds woman, which was probably his best creation, right, men? Right? Definitely one of the most complex, that's for certain, but in a good way, right? In the fact that she's able to have a human living within her for nine months. That's what I'm talking about. But just think about that. Like, God is personal. He's There, he walks in chapter three, walks in the garden to talk with them. And I think what this demonstrates is that God's plan was to dwell with his people so they could relate with him, to him, and they could communicate with him. So here you have God personally with his people. And so who is this one in the garden? Like, you know, this one walking around who's speaking as if, and he is, Yahweh. Who is that? Well, this is the word of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. As we read here this morning, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, all things were made through him. So here he's the one that's picking up the dirt and and making man. He's the one breathing into man the breath of life. And now you might ask, How do you know that for certain? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to put these verses up here. 
and you can write these down if you want to, but over and over in the scripture, we see that the Bible teaches no human can ever or will ever see the Father. No human sees the Father. Only the Son makes the Father known. John 6, 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he, and Jesus is speaking of himself, he who is from God, he has seen the Father. 1 Timothy 6, 16. Who, the Father, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. John 4, uh, 12. No one has ever seen God. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, that's the Son of God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So who is this in Genesis chapter 2? This is the Son of God. This is the eternal word of God. Now, this can be confusing, so let me clear something up for some who maybe have this question. Because God the Son does not have an eternal body. God is spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is spirit. There's not some body that, that in eternity past that God the Son had. In fact, even right here, this is not a part of his nature. He didn't have a body. And so maybe you get confused and you ask the question, well, isn't Jesus the Son of God? Doesn't he have a body? And the answer to that is yes, Jesus is 100% God, but he became man. So this is the beginning of creation and depending on how you do your timeline, this is, you know, uh, after creation, 4,000 plus or whatever years later, God became man. That's called the incarnation. And he didn't give up his divinity. He didn't replace his divinity with humanity. He didn't become less of God. He took on another nature. So he remained 100% God, and he became 100% man. So, you know, Go to the past of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 here. So what's happening here? Well, this is some kind of temporary just way to show um, Adam and Eve who, uh, way, way to communicate, I should say, to Adam and Eve who he is. But this is not a part of his nature. This is a, a brief, temporary manifestation of the Son of God. But I do think it communicates really a foreshadowing of what would happen in the future and also communicates that God wants the fellowship with his people. God's a personal God. God's not a distant God off in a far galaxy. God wants to and desires and created us to have fellowship with him. In fact, notice this in verse 16, Genesis 2, 16. Here we see Yahweh speaking directly to Adam. Genesis 2, 16. And Yahweh, God, commanded the man, saying... So here he is speaking face to face. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in this verse, Yahweh announces that he's created this all for the blessing of Adam and Eve. In other words, this earth we're on, God created it for us to enjoy. And what he does here is he basically says, this is to be a blessing for you. And there was only one restriction. What was that? You couldn't eat of a certain tree. I mean, it's kind of like going into the Costco and someone gives you a debit card and they say, listen, it's unlimited. You can buy whatever you want for as long as you want, for as many years as you want. 
And that's what it was for Adam and Eve. They could enjoy that for as long as they want, for, forever. But what was the spiritual debit card for them? What was it? It was the word of God. In other words, if they obeyed God's word, there was blessing. If they obeyed God's word, there was joy in the fellowship of the triune God. But if they disobeyed God's word, they would die. They would be separated from God. And why is that? Because to disobey God's word is to disobey God. And that's what he means when he says that in the day that you eat of it, you will die. You must listen to my word. You must listen and obey my word. God's word created. God's word sustains. God's word plots history. God's word provides blessing and fellowship. God's word is how he relates to us, but also God's word brings judgment if it's rejected. When we hear God's word, when a person listens to God's word and they reject it, they're rejecting God himself and therefore there will be judgment upon them. And do you realize the significance of God's word here? Everything, literally everything in your life is dependent upon the word of God. Do you realize that? You you were created. You are held together because of the word of God. Blessing comes to you from God's word. Judgment will come upon you if you're without Christ because of the word of God. And your response to God's word is how you respond to God. And and, and church, that's why it's so important for us to value the word of God. I mean, if, if, if the word of God is that important for our life, how much more should the word of God be important for each of us personally? In fact, that's why Satan's first attack upon God was upon God's word. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse one. What does Satan come after? How does he oppose God? Well, it's the word of God. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree? of any tree in the garden. How did Satan attack God here? He questioned the word of God. Remember, it's through the word that God works. And so what Satan does here is he comes after the work of God found in the word of God. And once Adam and Eve rejected the word of God, they were condemned. Look at Genesis chapter three, verse eight. They were in that garden to have fellowship with God and his word. And in verse 8, and they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So there's God to fellowship with them. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide themselves? Because they disobeyed God's word. And therefore, they disobeyed God, and therefore, there was shame. In fact, look at verse 11. You can see this shame. Yahweh says to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded? What's that? That's God's word. I commanded you not to eat. And notice the offense relates to the rejecting of God's command. 
because humanity has rejected God, because they have rejected God's word, the world now suffers from the curse of pain and death. And therefore, the only solution is for the word to come and rescue us. It's for the word to become flesh, to live among us, to perfectly live out and obey the word in obedience to the Father, and then to die and remove the curse from us with, by becoming a curse for us. The word of God curses those who are wicked, and the word of God offers grace to those who believe. Go to Genesis chapter 18. We're just going to walk through a couple of verses. I want to demonstrate this truth to you throughout the scripture. Genesis 8, 18, what you find is God the Father continues to work through the word and by his spirit. In Genesis 18, and also Genesis 12, but we're not going to go there, we see that God appears to Abraham. Genesis 18, 1. And the Lord, or Yahweh, appeared to him by the oaks of uh, Mamrah as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So here's Abraham sitting in the door of his tent, and here are three men who come up to talk to him. And one of the men actually speaks not just for Yahweh, but as Yahweh. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, and the Lord, or Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. She was barren. She was too old to have children. And what he's promising here is that I will enable her to be able to, be able to have children. So how did Yahweh work in the life of Abraham and Sarah? It was through the word. In fact, even for Abraham, how did Abraham have righteousness imputed to him? God took his own righteousness and gave it to Abraham. How did he do that? Because he believed the word, right? Abraham believed God's word. It was accounted unto him for righteousness. Go to Exodus chapter 24. And we could go through account after account in the Old Testament and see Jesus, or see the Son of God appearing in this human form speaking to his people and God working through him personally, but also through his words. In Exodus 24, what we see is we see his written word. Exodus 24, look at verse 7. Then he, that's Moses, took the book of the covenant. Now, where did he get that from? Well, Yahweh God communicated it to to Moses. And who was that that spoke that to Moses? That was the Son of God. So he took the book of the covenant, that's God's word, he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. In other words, they're saying, we're going to consider this right here, the, 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 the law of God, we're going to consider it as God's word to us, to disobey this word is to disobey God. And they promise, we will obey. Now, did Israel keep their promise? No, they didn't. I mean, right after this, what do they do? They take their earrings off, they take their, their, 
their metal uh, or their gold wristbands off. They take their necklaces off and they melt it down and they make a golden idol. And they actually call that idol Yahweh. Oh, this is Yahweh. And what they were doing was taking what they thought God should be and putting it in their own idea of what God should be like. In other words, they want to kind of put God in this box. Like we, we can fathom a golden calf, so we're going to worship that. And they began to worship that golden calf. And they actually disobeyed God's word. And so the question is, why? Why, if they had God's word, why, and they promised to follow God's word, why did they not obey God's word? We'll go to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33 gives us the reason why. God actually says the reason why Israel disobeyed his word. And here's the answer. Exodus 33, verse 5, the answer is that they resisted the Holy Spirit, they ignored the word of God, and they rejected their Lord. Exodus 33, 5. For Yahweh said to Moses, say to my people, here's their problem, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Do you know what that's talking about? That's talking about judgment right there. They disobeyed God's word, and so God said, I, you deserve to be consumed. Can we just say this? Let's, let's pause here and say this. All of us deserve that right there because all of us have disobeyed God's word. God is a holy God, and all of us deserve to be consumed. We all deserve to be sent to, directly to hell, and the fact that we're still alive is God's mercy upon us. But why did they not humble themselves under the word of God. Why did they not obey the word of God? What does God say? You are a stiff-necked people. In other words, Israel had hearts that were stubborn and spiritually hard. Stiff-necked was originally used to describe an ox or a mule that refused to be moved by a farmer. So, so think about a farm. Think about maybe a mule on that farm, and maybe there's, maybe there's a father in the house, the farmer, and he sends out his son, and he says to his son, son, get, get the prod, go out there and try to, try to move that mule. And so the son goes out there, he tries to move that mule, and he pokes him in the behind, you know, and the mule stiffens his neck, right? He's stubborn. He's not going to move. That's, that's the picture here, right? The father sent the son, and if you want to say the Holy Spirit is the, the, the rod, the, the prod, he, he prodded Israel, and they stiffened their neck. They resisted the Holy Spirit, they ignored the word of God, and ultimately, they disobeyed the Father. That's why Stephen, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 7, there are the religious rulers in front of him, they are the people who, who had Jesus crucified, and he preaches, goes to the gospel, at the very end, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as what? As your fathers did, so do you. And here was the problem with Israel. Here was the problem with these Jewish leaders. Here's the problem in our world. People have hard hearts towards God. And so they can hear God's word. You might even be in here today. You're listening to God's word, but you don't care. And you know why? Because you resist the Holy Spirit. You say, I want to live life from me. I want to go my direction. I don't really care about all this stuff that's in here. You don't honor God's word. You don't listen to God's word. You don't humble yourself under the word of God and trust God's word. You are stiff-necked. 
God wants us to have a tender heart to the work of the Holy Spirit, to the word of God, and to the Father. And here's the idea. God comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And you know what? You can only go to the Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. In fact, go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in the New Testament. Israel did not have the gift of the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you want to write this passage down, you can write down Numbers chapter 11 and look it up there. Moses had the Spirit. Some of the elders had the Spirit. Many of the times when they are indwelt by the Spirit, it was temporary, but it was not permanent. So what happens in the New Testament is Jesus comes to give the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 1, here you have God comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by his Spirit in the power of the Spirit of God. And our greatest problem that we have is sin and guilt, and therefore the greatest solution can only be solved by the Word. If God works in our world through the Word of God, then the only solution for our world can come through what? Through the Word. And that's why you see in John 1.14. Look at John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. That's the incarnation. That's the point in history when the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and caused the Son of God to have another nature, and that was the nature of humanity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we see the Father sent the Son and the Son lived and dwelt among us, and he displayed the glory and the goodness and the wonderful blessings of God, and he came as a king to die, to conquer death and sin and the devil. He was a king who was also commissioned, right? Look down in John chapter 1, verse 32. He was commissioned by the Father, anointed by the Spirit, John chapter 1, verse 32. And John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is what? This is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. The, the Holy Spirit came upon him. The Father spoke and we see here the triune work of God to commission Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And I would encourage you this week to go through the Gospel of John, read through the Gospel of John, take this statement right here, God come to us, comes to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, and, and consider how Jesus works in the Gospel of John. I mean, in John chapter 4, he turns the water into wine. How did he do that? He didn't put a powder in there. He just spoke and it happened. Who does that? The Son of God. And then there was this man that came to him from Capernaum, and he had a son who was sick. And Jesus didn't go to Capernaum and wave his hand over him and slap him on the top of the head. He just spoke, and the man's son was instantly healed. And so what you see is Jesus is the Word who is able to 
heal, who is able to control all things. In fact, a very interesting story in John chapter 9 is when Jesus heals a blind man. Remember that story? And here's a man who can't see, so Jesus takes dirt off the ground and wipes it in his eyes. Now, have you ever wondered why that's the case? Why wouldn't he just speak? And, and he's done that before. Well, I wonder why he would do that. What's he picturing there when he takes that dirt from the ground and, and creates sight for that person? What's he doing? He's the Genesis chapter 2, Yahweh God. He's the son of God. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, there's a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he thinks he can go to God on his own. Like he thinks he can present his own goodness and God will accept him. But in, in John chapter 3, Jesus tells him, actually, no, you can't go to the Father unless the Holy Spirit gives you life based upon the work of the Son. If you read through John 3, that's what you see. Look at John 3, chapter 3, verse 34. John 3, 34. For he, that's Jesus, whom God, that's the Father, has sent, utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. So how... Did God work through Jesus, through the words that he spoke, and through his spirit? Look at John chapter 5, verse 24. How does God rescue a sinner? How does God rescue those who are hopeless? That's all of us, by the way. It's through the word sent from the Father. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking Whoever hears my word, so there's his word. Whoever hears my word, which is also the Father's word, right? And believes him who sent me, that's the Father, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Listen to this. If you believe the word of God, that God the Father sent the Son because he loved you and he wanted to redeem you, and if you if you turn from your sin, you trust Jesus as your Savior, he will give you eternal life. If you believe his word, he promises that he will give you the gift of eternal life. It's because Jesus is the word. Look down in John chapter 5, verse 39. Notice Jesus said the Old Testament was all about him. They spoke about him. In fact, he was the one who appeared in the Old Testament. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. That's Jesus. Look at verse 46. For if you believed Moses, in other words, they were rejecting the word of God, even though they said they did believe it, they didn't really. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. In other words, if you guys believe the Old Testament, you would believe the New Testament, because all of it is about Jesus. Let's end this last passage with John chapter 17. John 17. In John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, but he also prays for us, his church. And in here, he tells us how he's going to work in his church. A lot of people have ideas today of, of how God could work in the church. A lot of different plans that people have but God actually gives us the plan right here. Look at John chapter 17, 
verse 17. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them, make them holy, set them apart unto yourself, sanctify them in your truth. Well, where is that found? Your word is truth. So God's word is what sanctifies us. It's what sets us apart. It's what makes us holy. And then look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only. In other words, those sitting at this table here, I'm not just asking for my disciples in this room, but also for those who will believe. Who's that? Well, if you're believing in Jesus, that's you. And, and where do they, how, do they, how do they believe? Who believe in me through their, what does that word say? Word. Through their word. Well, who's there? That's the apostles. In other words, the New Testament and the Old Testament is a gift for us to have God work in our life. It's a gift of God's work through Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let me wrap up with some applications for us to consider. Number one, what does this mean for us? It means we must come to God through the word. If you want God to speak to you, you might think, maybe, I, maybe I'll go up to a mountain up here and I'll sit on the side of a mountain and just wait for God to communicate with you. Guess what? It's going to be pretty silent. If you want God to speak to you, he speaks through his word. If you want God to work in your life, he works through his word. If you need to be saved, he'll save you when you believe in his word. If you want to be sanctified, if you want to, be, if you want to grow in Christ, God grows you, he sanctifies you through his word. God's word is how he works in our lives. It's through his word. God's primary work in our world is through the word. It's not through a ritual. Like some people want to go to a church and, and light a candle, get a spiritual feeling, or they want to be in a church where it'll set the mood for them and they, they can come out and say, oh, I really felt God today. But listen, if the word is not present, God was not present. Because God works through the word. If you want to meet with God, friends, if you want to meet with God, open this up. Go home, open this up, and listen to it as God's word, which it truly is. If you want to experience God, sit under the preaching of the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. Think about that. All scripture is breathed out by God. The Father's thoughts, spoken by the Son, empowered by the Spirit's breath, it's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for, for doctrine. That tells you what's right. There's a lot of people in this world that want to know what's right and wrong. Well, maybe they don't want to know, but they declare what they think is right and wrong. The Bible tells us what's right and wrong. What's right, what's, what's true, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, righteousness, so that you may be mature. How can you mature in Christ? It's through the word of God. He can equip you for every good work. His word comforts the sad. His word confronts the strained. His word builds up the broken. His word rejoices those of faith. His word satisfies the spiritually hungry. His word calms the anxious. His word delivers the tempted. His word frees the enslaved. His word matures the immature. And so if you're sitting in the hospital and you're, you're, you, you want to know how you can have God work in your life, can I just tell you this? Open up the word of God. 
It doesn't mean that God's going to heal you of whatever sickness you have. It doesn't mean he's not going to, but it doesn't mean he is. We have, uh, we're living in a day where we have the blessing of, of medicine and of doctors, and praise God for that. And we, we pray that God will give them skill and wisdom to help us. But when you sit in the hospital there, friends, what you really need in your heart that moment is you need peace. You need to know God. You need to know that he's the one in charge. He's in control. You need to know that he has your soul. He's caring for you. And where do you find that? If you want to meet with God right before you're about to go into surgery and you're very scared, if you want to meet with God, how do you meet with God? How can God talk to you? Open up the word. How many times, how many times have I been in the hospital? Whether it be my wife was pregnant and she had some complications or whether it be I've had multiple surgeries and taken the word and read the scripture and how it comforted my soul. If you're going to talk to a friend about the gospel, what instrument would God want you to primarily use? It's the word of God. If you're entrapped by your sin, what is the powerful weapon that God can use to free you? It's his word. It's how he works. And so we must come to God through the word. We must rely upon the spirit to empower his word. You can't just go home from this and say, okay, I'm going to try to do better. Like, I'm going to try to obey the word of God. I'm going to be like Israel, you know? Everything you say, I will do. And then you go home and you mess it all up. Why is that? Because you need the spirit of God to empower you. You need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. And listen to this. The spirit never works apart from his word. That's one of the problems many churches have today. That's one of the problems many cults have. You ever had someone come up to you and say, well, you know what? If you just pray about this, if you just pray about this, then I think God will lead you to it. And, you know, they're not talking about the word of God. They're talking about whatever doctrinal, you know, error that they have. And they said, if you, you just pray about this, if you, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Let her take off there. If you just pray about this, I'm sure God will lead you into that. It's actually, and lead you into the truth. But actually the truth is you need to pray and look at the word of God. The spirit of God works in concert with the word of and we as believers are not able to, to understand and even to obey the word without the power of the Holy Spirit. And then last, we must be aware of Satan's attack on the word of God. Satan's number one point of attack in your life, do you know what it is? If God works through his word, what's Satan's number one point of attack in your life? It's the word of God. It's sitting in a thing like this and listening to God's word. You're saying, I don't really care about that. You know what that is? That's called Satan influencing your mind to say, I don't want to follow God. I want to follow my way. And Satan wants to tempt us to believe God's word is not sufficient. It's not authoritative. It's not necessary. It's not important for our lives. He doesn't want the word in our homes. He doesn't want the word in your mind. He doesn't want the word in your life. His constant attack against you is against the word of God. He wants you to neglect the word. He wants you to reject the word. He wants you to disrespect the word. He wants you to disconnect from the word. But here's the good news, my friends. God loves you, and so he's given you a wonderful gift. You know what it is? It's his word. He wants to speak to you. He wants to transform your life, and he does it through the word of God. He wants you to receive the word. He wants you to love the word. He wants you to trust the word. He wants you to allow the word to transform your life. And so the question for us is, 
are we honoring God's word? Are we looking for God to work in our life through the word of God? Are we submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit and relying upon his strength to, to fulfill God's will found in God's word? Are we trusting our loving, loving heavenly Father?